0: This week, I'm delighted to have with me Professor Lewis Dartnell, research scientist, presenter and author. And here to interview him are our Year 12 STEM Ambassadors, Maddie and Chiara. Welcome to Chatting with Channing. This is the podcast for Channing School that lets you, the listener, find out more by hearing from people throughout the whole school community. Each episode, you'll hear real stories from staff, from pupils, from parents, and the school's alumni to give you a true reflection of life on Highgate Hill. So, come with us as we get into this episode right now. So, jumping right in, could you please provide our listeners with a brief overview of astrobiology and the specific areas of interest within the field?
1: Yeah, so astrobiology is quite a new area of science. It's quite fresh. And it's also very what's described as interdisciplinary, So it is biology overlapping with chemistry, overlapping with geology and planetary sciences and physics and astronomy, and all those areas of science where they overlap, trying to answer the question about whether there might be life beyond the earth. So I've I've come into astrobiology from a biology background, but I have friends in astrobiology who've come from planetary science and astronomy and, and, and geology. And my particular area of research within astrobiology in general is our next or neighbour planet Mars and if there are any Martian bacteria, Martian bugs there, how well they might be able to survive the radiation environment on Mars because Mars doesn't have a thick atmosphere, doesn't have any magnetic fields to protect the planet from the nasty radiation from outer space. So I effectively look at the Martian death rays in this research.
2: So can you share some insights into your personal journey in the field of astrobiology including key moments or experiences that have shaped your career?
1: Yeah so I, I came from a biology background, as I said, so I read biological sciences uh, at Oxford and then moved to UCL to University College of London for my PhD. And it was while I was at UCL, I had the opportunity to sort of expand from biology into astrobiology because they'd had a new department at the time called COMPLEX, which stood for the center of mathematics and physics and the life Sciences and experimental biology, which is a massive long acronym. But it was a wonderful department where they got biologists working with physicists working with mathematicians and for the first year you effectively taught to teach each other stuff you don't know so i come from a biology background but i learned a lot of computer programming a lot of physics a lot of statistics and maths and then at the end of that master's year the mres at ucl they almost literally give you a suitcase full of cash and say here's your research funding that's your phd stipend go do whatever you like go do any research as long as it is biology Overlapping with something else. And I said, thank you ever so much. Suitcase a of cash." I want to get involved in an astrobiology and look at the possibility of there being life uh, on other planets.
0: Let's say a Chinese student wanted to go into astrobiology, what would you recommend them studying? Yeah, I mean you can study pretty much
1: any science and get into astrobiology. It doesn't really exist at the undergraduate level. So you would need to do a degree in one of the normal sciences, as it were. So biology like I did or science or geology or physics and astronomy but also it has lots of overlap with engineering and robotics and control systems as well so when we explore mars we're not sending humans and astronauts to explore we're sending our robots to explore for us so there's a lot of engineering and electronics and instrumental design that that goes into that field as well so if you're a student chatting and you're interested in becoming an astrobiologist, um I would recommend you pick whatever subject you find most interesting at A-level, take that through to degree, and then you can start specialising in Astrobiology later if you want to
0: And your book, The Knowledge, explores the idea of rebuilding civilisation from scratch. What inspired you to delve into this topic?
1: Yes, yeah, so I spoke this morning about Astrobiology, and this evening I'm talking about one of my other books, uh, which is all about how you can reboot civilisation after some kind of global catastrophe, after some kind of apocalypse. And the reason I wrote the book isn't because I'm some kind of doomsday prep, right? I don't have the end of the world is nigh placard around my chest. But as a scientist, I thought a really good vehicle, a good conceit to explore behind the scenes of the modern world and all the things we take for granted and understanding where it comes from and how it's made in the first place. I thought a good conceit to explore that was to imagine it just disappears tomorrow. Like there's, there's been some kind of global catastrophe and civilizations collapsed and the vast majority of humanity has disappeared. And we've all seen, you know, the Netflix, We've all seen the film of that. But as a scientist, I wanted to ask the question of what happens next? How could you rebuild from the ground up? How could you accelerate the progress, the process of of recovery? How could you avoid another dark ages like the wars after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, Western Roman civilization? So at the end of the day, it's, it's a book about science and technology and human ingenuity and human resourcefulness, and how you could effectively do Minecraft for real if you start in a blank empty landscape and know the most useful things about what to collect and how to use them in different ways to make new tools and, and technology. So, so that's what I explore in, in the book, the knowledge and, and the talk I'm doing this afternoon.
2: Okay, with advancements in astrobiology, what are your thoughts on the possibility of life beyond Earth and how might we detect it in the future?
1: Well, clearly. Given that I've chosen to specialise in astrobiology and spend my career in it, I think there is a good chance they will find life on other planets. Hopefully, somewhere nearby. Hopefully, on extra-Neighbour planet Mars, maybe Enceladus, maybe Europa, which are some of the moons orbiting Jupiter and Saturn in our solar system. Because these places we can go to, we can go with our robots and we can find that life and maybe bring it back to the Earth to study it in our laboratories. But as to whether what sort of timescale that might happen on, I mean, who knows? Maybe the next rover that the European Space Agency is launching, called ExoMars, or so the Rosalind Franklin rover, maybe that will find evidence, maybe we'll have to wait for the mission after that. We don't really know. But the whole point about science is don't know the answer when you start looking into it.
0: You mentioned earlier today about there being a possibility of, let's say, a planet two. Do you think humans will ever live on another planet? And then I guess going on from, from that, do you think we should go and live on another planet? Yeah,
1: it's, it's, it's a great question. And what our astronomers are finding are more and more Earth-like planets out in our galaxy. So small, rocky planets orbiting sun-like stars with the right kind of orbits. They're not too hot or too cold, but they're just right climates for for life and liquid water oceans on, on, on their surface. So those are the best targets, the best places, the most likely places to have extraterrestrial life on them. But also the longer term future they might be the best place for humans to try to settle on, to colonise, and then spread beyond the Earth. But it's not just a scientific question, there's a a deep ethical or philosophical question there as well. And clearly when you're using words like colonisation, that comes with a lot of historical baggage. And a lot of the time when, in history, European powers were colonising the rest of the world, there were already people there. And to extend that concept to astrobiology, if we find Earth-like planets that already has its own indigenous life on it, should humans go there and potentially risk destroying the ecosystem that we find? Would, would we wipe that life out so that it's got the best chance for supporting our kind of life and then the humans? And that's not really a scientific question anymore. That, that's an ethical question. That's a sociological question. You know? If this becomes possible centuries in the future, you'd like to think the whole of society was debating, discussing whether we should do that. Or not when we choose not to do something. Like
2: that. So um, you've been involved in public engagement and education about science. So um, how important do you think it is for scientists to communicate their work to the public? I think
1: I think it's really important. And, and again, clearly, I'd say that because I'm doing it. <laughs> but I think I think there's a wider point here that science isn't just about being in the lab, doing experiments, getting some new results, and data, making some discoveries. It, an important part of that is communicating that back to the public. And a large part of why I think that's important is because most of the science, or a lot of the science being done in the country, is paid for the public anyway. This is paid um, via you know, tax pounds. People pay their tax, and the government then redistributes that tax to universities and research grants. So, kind of, the scientists, you kind of owe it to the public to let them know what their money is paid for, like what discovery has come out of, of, of the money that you've been contributing. I also think there's many other important facts as well. Like, I only got into science myself, I only became a scientist, because when I was your age, at school, I met a scientist and he blew my mind. I said, I want to be like you when I grew up. Like, he was a role model for me. His name was uh, Neil Ausman, and he was a JPL, he was a NASA scientist, working on the Galileo mission that was going out to Jupiter to explore. And is that is that sort of like generational thing. It's, it's all about scientists communicating to the next generation so there are more more scientists it's kind of feeding it feeding it forward
0: do you want to see more um, I guess especially young people involved in your field of science? yeah I mean
1: absolutely of course I would I'd like to see more young people involved in science in general uh, involved in astrobiology in particular I guess I think astrobiology is, is very much a growth area we're making more and more discoveries um, which are indicating to us or telling us that that life might be quite likely. On other planets and moons. So it'd be great to get people involved in that. And the other important aspect about space exploration is it takes a long while. It could be 10, 20, if not even more years to go from the original concept of a probe to get it funded, to get it designed, to get it built, to get it put on top of the point end of a rocket, to get it launched from Earth. It can then take years and years of traveling through space. So the people that are likely to be leading the missions, looking for life in the oceans of Europa, for example, are probably still in school right now, because science, but particularly space science and space exploration, takes decades to go from beginning to end.
0: And what would your pitch for um, astrobiology be to students? Have
1: have they not sold enough already? (laughs) Uh, So to my mind, astrobiology is a phenomenally interesting area of science. It's very dynamic, it's very, very fast moving, it's very diverse because it involves so many other different kinds of science all coming together. So the reason I chose to get involved in astrobiology is simply I just found it interesting and found it fun. And I suspect other people might as well.
0: And I suppose a bit more of a trivial question. But do you ever want to go to space? Uh,
1: good question. The answer is no. <laughs> well, more What's the point. I would very happily go for a quick weekend break <laughs> in space. And maybe you go to like a weekend break in a spa And I'd go up to a low-Earth orbit uh, hotel and I'll have a wonderful time floating around the zero gravity and taking in the view, looking down on the Earth. I do not want to go on a mission to Mars, which at the very quickest would be something like a two-year mission there and back. And the instant you leave Earth, you are not coming back any earlier than two years. You're committing to that entire mission because you have to wait for planets to line up their orbits again before you can come back home. And for that entire mission, you're drinking your own recycled urine, because that's where the water comes from. You're drinking recycled oxygen and air. You're crammed into something the size of a caravan with people that probably your friends when you start might not be getting a well with them two years down the line. So it will take a very, very special kind of person, an astronaut, to be the first crewed mission we send to Mars. I would not consider it for even a second, But I'd love to be a tourist in space. I think that that would be my level.
2: With your public engagement experience, have you found a lack of engagement from the general public or even young people into your field? Or are people always wanting to learn more?
1: Yeah, to be honest, I've actually i not found it particularly difficult in my career to get members of the public or school children excited or interested or engaged in the sort of things I think about. Not because I think I'm particularly good at science (laughs) communication, but I think the search for aliens is just one of those subjects that, Everyone's already thought about, everyone's sort of seen the film. I had a chat with their parents and their family over, over cornflakes at the breakfast table. And I think it's just an, it, it's pushing it an open door. It's easy to get people interested in certain kinds of science. If I was doing something much more theoretical or some sort of very highbrow mathematical proofs, it might be much more difficult. But I think there are certain things that people are sort of intrinsically interested in. Dinosaurs is one of them. <laughs> I think space is the, is the other. So when you're talking about basically trying to find space dinosaurs, <laughs> you've nailed it.
0: And would you like to see more international cooperation into space exploration?
1: It is already enormously internationally cooperative. The European Space Agency, uh, which is designing, building the XMRs probe, for example, that, that I mentioned already, is a collaboration of people all across Europe. So people here in Britain are working with the Spanish and the Dutch and the French and the Germans and the Italians, people all across Europe are working together for that mission as well as many other missions. So, so science is very, very internationally cooperative. And I think space science, because it is quite expensive in the scheme of things, and it can take long time periods, is particularly international, I think.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Professor I... Darkman. That was fascinating. And as as a child of, uh, of the 80s, growing up on a diet of Star Trek and 2001, a space odyssey and the like, it's really fascinating to see this, the science fiction that I consumed become science fact <laughs> now as an adult. And I cannot wait to see uh, what the next developments are actually in your field. And we're very much looking forward to your talk later on. So thank you very much to Maddie and Chiara for the questions. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening,
2: and we'll see you in the next one.